Hello, and welcome to Cinema Sunday. I am your host, Candy Thomas, and each week I'm going to watch one of the 94 movies that have won an Oscar for Best Picture and tell you exactly what I think of them. I'm going to follow the same template every week. It's the basic details of the movie, things like who's in it and what's it about. And then I'm going to answer three important questions for you. One, does it stand the test of time? Two, is it Oscar worthy? Three, should you watch it? Or is this a train wreck you wish you didn't have to witness? Just as a friendly reminder, along with my honest assessment of these movies, you're going to get my hot takes on many current events. I vent about things that make me unhappy and I mix it with a heaping dose of adult language. Please be sure to listen with caution. Before we begin, I'd like to thank Wikipedia and IMDb, as they're great sources of information for all things movie and Oscar-related. And with that, let's take it away. This week's Oscar-winning film is The Sting. It was released December 25th, 1973. It was directed by George Roy Hill. It stars Paul Newman, Robert Redford, and Robert Shaw, along with supporting contributors Eileen Brennan, Charles Durning, Ray Walston, and Harold Gould, plus several other notable performances. It was nominated for a total of 10 Oscars, and it won seven. It won for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Film Editing, Best Original Screenplay, Best Musical Score, Best Costume Design, and Best Art Direction. If you want to watch it, you can watch it for free on Paramount Plus or Showtime if you are a subscriber, or Hulu if you have the Showtime add-on feature. Otherwise, you'll end up doing just like I did, and you'll pay $3.99 to watch it on either Amazon or Apple TV streaming services. So what's it about? (laughs) Well, it's not about what I thought it was about. And I'm going to sound like an idiot here for a minute, but I think you deserve to hear this story. When I decided to watch The Sting, I knew nothing about it other than it starred Robert Redford and Paul Newman. Now, in my defense, they have starred in a couple other movies together. So it's understandable to see why I might get confused. You see, (laughs) they're also in a movie called Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid which is a Western about two cowboys who rob trains. I must have seen that movie when I was a small child because I have faint memories of these two same actors wearing cowboy hats and riding around on horses. So as I sit down to watch The Sting, I had it in my head that that was the movie I was watching. And I'm not kidding. I'm like 20 minutes into it and I'm asking myself, where are all the horses? Well, it turns out there are no horses in this movie. There are no train robbers or deputized posses chasing our protagonists. It turns out this is a completely different movie. So what is it about? Well, Wikipedia describes The Sting as an American caper film set in 1936 involving a complicated plot by two professional grifters who con a mob boss. And complicated is the operative word. So let me take some time to really dive into the details. We start in Joliet, Illinois. It's 1936, so it's set during the Great Depression. And although it's a time where people are struggling just to keep food on the table, it's also a time of great wealth for gamblers, mobsters, and 
basically anyone willing to cheat the system to get ahead. A small-time grifter named Johnny Hooker. I'm going to pause here for a minute because that's a really great name. He's played by Robert Redford and is working small-time cons alongside his partner, Luther Coleman. The two of them are basically like just a couple of steps above pickpockets, right? Usually taking unsuspecting marks for whatever small amounts they may have on them. Until one day, they pull a fast one on a well-dressed businessman, which nets them about 11 grand. Now, this is roughly $224,000 in today's money. This is their biggest hit ever. And while Johnny runs right out and gambles away his share, Luther decides it's time to retire. This score will allow him enough of a nest egg so he can spend the rest of his days living an honest life. Now, you would have thought that someone carrying that kind of cash during a depression would have triggered some red flags. But Johnny and Luther are too busy celebrating their gigantic haul to wonder whose money they've just stolen. And it doesn't take long for us to find out that it's mob money and they are in hot water. The mob boss finds out that two small-time hoodlums have stolen from him and he sends a couple of thugs to pay the boys a visit. Luckily for Hooker, a crooked cop played by Charles Durning gets wind of the mob hit and he gets to Hooker first. Lieutenant Snyder is on the take and he tells Hooker he'll keep him safe from mobsters but he expects Hooker to give him two grand or he's going to hand him over. Now remember, Hooker already blew his take at the roulette table, but he pulls out a big handful of bills and hands it over to Snyder. He's bought himself some safety, but not for long, because what he gave to Snyder was counterfeit. Hooker tries to warn Luther that hired killers are coming for them, but he's too late. Being chased by hired killers and a vengeful cop with his partner dead and no safe place to hide, Hooker hightails it to Chicago. Luther had often spoken about a man named Henry Gondorf, who's played by Paul Newman, who is the absolute master of the long con. Hooker plans to get even with the mob boss who killed Luther and knows Gondorf will help him pull together a big, gigantic score to help bankrupt the son of a bitch. Doyle Lonigan is played by Robert Shaw. You would know him. He's the guy who played Captain Quint, the shark hunter, in the movie Jaws. You know, the guy who needs a bigger boat. He's an Irish mob boss out of New York who travels to Chicago every three weeks for business. Most of his money comes from running numbers, but he's also a banker, so he has a legitimate business to keep himself respectable. But he's dangerous. He's cruel and vindictive and greedy. His MO is to get close to a racket boss, learn the operation, and then move in to take it over. He's left a trail of dead bodies along the way. He's one mean motherfucker who will kill you just to save his pride. Luckily, Luther Coleman was a very well-liked man in the grifter community, and it doesn't take long for Henry to pull together an impressive collection of confidence men willing to risk their lives to avenge Luther's death. Of course, they have to come up with a scheme that will work. Con men usually have a number of different tricks up their sleeve, depending on the situation and the gullibility of the particular mark. In the case of Doyle Lonigan, he's a prolific cheater and thief himself, so he's going to be hyper-vigilant when it comes to doing any type of business with new people. He's accustomed to being the swindler, not the person getting swindled. 
they realize that Doyle isn't going to be easy to sucker. He's not a drinker. He doesn't chase women. He lives a pretty vice-free life. So many of their normal cons won't work on him. The one thing they can be sure of is that he will gamble if he knows he can win, meaning he needs to feel like there's a surefire way he can cheat or have some type of advantage before he's willing to put his money down. Henry decides they're going to run what's called the wire. Now, bear with me for a few minutes while I walk through this. It gets a little confusing. And of course, they have to use aliases. So Hooker and Henry are known to Doyle as Kelly and Shaw. I'm going to continue calling them Hooker and Henry to avoid confusion. So first, they have to bait the hook, which means Henry will need to get himself into Doyle Lonigan's high-stake poker game, which takes place on the train he rides from New York to Chicago. There are several rich businessmen who specifically ride this route to play in this game. And since Doyle is a prolific cheater, he typically comes out on top. The plan is for Henry, who also happens to have a knack for sleight of hand, to run the table and win big. But it's more than that. Henry needs to make Doyle angry. And the way to do it is to disrespect and belittle him in front of the other men. And Henry does this perfectly. By the time the game ends, Doyle is broke, pissed, and wants revenge. Then it becomes Hooker's job to reel him in. Hooker goes to Doyle saying he works for Henry, helping to run his very successful sports gambling racket. Hooker is a disgruntled employee who wants nothing more than to overthrow his boss and run the racket himself. He pitches to Doyle that he has a way to do it, but he needs him as a partner. And we all know what Doyle's answer is going to be. And at this point, the con is on. Let me try to explain how the wire would work, and it's going to involve a little bit of a history lesson. Today, if you wanted to watch a sporting event, let's say it's a horse race in Belmont Park, New York, all you'd have to do is turn on your TV. You can see all the action live, just as if you were there. It's all in real time. There is no delay. But this is 1936. So if a horse race is run in New York, the details and results could take maybe a couple of hours to reach people across the country. News traveled via telegraph. So each major city had telegraph offices where they could send and receive information. If you're familiar with Western Union, well, that was their original purpose. They received information wired to them from other telegraph offices around the country, and they would pass it along to newspaper offices and sports books, essentially all of those that need the news as quickly as possible. The messages, which are sent electronically over a series of above ground wires, would then feed into a special machine, which I don't know the name of it, but it's a special machine that would translate the electronic signal into words and spit out a ticker tape with information on it. So in this example, there's someone at the horse race in Belmont who's there watching the race live. And they're basically like a frantic court reporter, right? They're feverishly typing away, trying to capture everything that is happening. The information is sent electronically across the wire. At the receiving end, there is a machine that will spit out a long, skinny strip of ticker tape with the results printed onto it. The point I'm trying to make is that there is a delay. So even though the horse race is over and there's already a winner, there are many people who have not found that out yet. And this information in the hands of a bunch of con men who know how to work the system means it could end up being worth a whole shitload of money. Hooker tells Doyle that he has a friend at the local Western Union office who is his partner in this scheme. 
All of the race results come from the East Coast into this office, and his friend is supposed to immediately send them along across the wire to all the other locations. But what he's agreed to do is intentionally delay long enough to look at the results, call up Doyle with a tip like, go bet on lucky lady to win at Belmont, the odds are five to one. Then Doyle hustles over to Henry's gambling hall and places a bet on the winning horse. After that, the results are released out onto the wire, and like all other bookies, Henry gets them via his ticker tape machine as the results are being read in what they think are real time. Doyle is casually sitting there drinking a scotch and wouldn't it figure. He's the only one in the entire room that happened to bet on Lucky Lady. They do a small test run that nets Doyle about 15 grand, but it's enough to convince him that A, Hooker and his pal at the Western Union are the real deal, and B, if he were to put down real money, like big money, he could wipe out Henry's business and get the ultimate revenge with just one well-placed bet. Now, this is just the main story. There's a whole lot of other extra things happening, which is why it gets a bit confusing. So think back to the beginning when Doyle Lonigan sent guys to kill Johnny Hooker and Luther Coleman for stealing 11 grand from his courier. Well, those guys are still chasing Hooker. They've tracked him to Chicago, but no one realizes that he is the same guy who's in a partnership with Doyle. Hooker is using the fake name Kelly, and Doyle's men are trying to find and kill him while he's literally riding around in the back of Doyle's car. (laughs) At some point, Doyle gets frustrated and he's like, why the hell can't you find this guy? Seriously. He wants the two-bit con man from Joliet found and killed, so he calls in one of his top assassins to finish the job. There's also Lieutenant Snyder, who comes to Chicago in pursuit of Hooker. He has a personal vendetta because Hooker conned him, but now he can legitimately say he's chasing a counterfeiter. And here's the deal with Snyder. He's supposed to be this serious bunko detective chasing down swindlers and cheats and conmen, but his real pursuit of the bad guy seems to be for the sole purpose of him taking his share of the money and letting them remain free. It's funny watching him because he thinks he's a total badass, but Hooker keeps escaping because in truth, he's a bumbling idiot. Let me give you a comparison. If you've ever seen the 1977 movie Smokey and the Bandit, Snyder is basically the serious version of Sheriff Buford T. Justice, the guy who pursues the bandit across like four states because he insists on being the guy to collar him for like speeding or whatever it was he did in Texas. This is Snyder. He goes from place to place trying to intimidate and bully people into giving up Hooker. But every time, he just embarrasses himself. The best part is that this was back in the day where everyone openly and to their face referred to detectives by their commonly used nickname, Dick, (laughs) which doesn't seem to amuse Snyder a whole lot. This is a really enjoyable cat and mouse game. There are some big surprises at the end, which I won't give away, but I can confirm the group manages to successfully get revenge for the death of Luther Coleman. Question one. Does the sting stand the test of time? I think it does. You know, the writing is very clever and everyone loves a good revenge story. It was made in 1973, so don't expect there to be any flashiness. There's no special effects or CGI. It is a character-driven caper movie with strong script and really great attention to detail. 
I, I find it enjoyable to watch these older movies because they used to put the end titles, like the end credits, at the beginning. So before it even starts, you already know who the director of photography and the costume designer were. I'm not sure at what point in history they started moving those to the end or why, but now we're up out of our seats like 10 seconds after the movie ends. Unless it's a Marvel movie, then you have to sit there for like 10 minutes just to get your 30 second trailer at the end. The point being, in today's world, all of those hardworking crew members really don't ever seem to get acknowledged the way they would have back then. It's set in 1936, so you have to laugh when Hooker goes to pay for his meal at the local diner and he's like, yeah, I had the meatloaf and a cup of coffee and a slice of pie. And she's like, that'll be 70 cents. (laughs) I mean, come on, it's adorable. I think there's some good accuracy in it. It's the depression, so it's understandable why Hooker wears the same two suits throughout the entire movie. He gets into some scrapes and even has to run away from thugs a few times, so I can't be sure how he keeps them so clean. One part of the movie really stands the test of time, and that is the music. The music is scored by Marvin Hamlish, who earned an Oscar for his efforts. You will know it. In fact, the movie opens to The Entertainer, which not only played on every player piano and every ice cream shop and pizza parlor when I was a kid, but the opening notes of it are actually a very common TikTok sound being used today. This is a 50-year-old song still being shared with millions of people. Let me play it real quick for you. Question two, is it Oscar worthy? Yes, 100%. The other movies nominated that year were American Graffiti, Cries and Whispers, The Exorcist, and A Touch of Class. I am a very big fan of American Graffiti. I would suggest if you haven't ever watched that one, you should. I think it's the first movie that Francis Ford Coppola ever produced, and it has a star-studded cast of today's veteran stars, from when they were teenagers. So like Ron Howard, Richard Dreyfuss, Harrison Ford. I also saw The Exorcist and it scared the holy living piss out of me. But I don't think either of them are nearly as enjoyable or as complete from start to finish as The Sting. The Sting is unique because it feels like every minute of it is worthwhile. Something is always happening to drive the story forward. What I think is really cool about this movie is they walk you through every step. You are part of it from beginning to end. You get to hear all of the planning. You see as they are auditioning a ragtag bunch of con men ensuring they get the best group and everyone is cast in the right part. You watch as they select locations, build fake sets, and bait the trap. A modern day comparison of this would be the George Clooney Brad Pitt version of Ocean's Eleven. The difference is, in Ocean's Eleven, they say something like, we're going to build an exact replica of the Bellagio vault. And they show a couple of quick clips of the guys hauling some boxes in or staring at some blueprints, and then poof, it's done. This movie doesn't skip that detail. You see a big crew of people painting and hammering, and they keep bringing you back to see the progress. At times, it can feel a little slow, but it's part of the buildup. This is a gigantic con, and I mean huge. $2 million in 1936, which would be like 
42.9 million today. So you need to see these guys leave nothing to chance. So they walk you through it all as if you're included in the action. Robert Redford was nominated for Best Actor, but he didn't win. The other nominees were Marlon Brando, Jack Nicholson, and Al Pacino. And believe it or not, the four of them were all beat that year by Jack Lemmon for his work in a movie called Save the Tiger. I have no idea what that is, but damn, I mean, it must have been amazing to beat out this group of talented actors. Question three, should you watch it? Yes. It's interesting because there are so many movies where people are like, oh my God, you need to watch The Godfather, or what do you mean you've never seen Rocky? And in my entire life, I've never once had anyone say, oh, you should definitely watch The Sting. And maybe if they had, I wouldn't have thought it was a freaking cowboy movie. But after watching it and then watching it for a second time immediately after the first time, I would like to officially say, oh my God, you need to watch The Sting. It's so good. And I can't believe I never heard anything about it before. Now it's definitely one of those, again, lots of details, lots of things happening. So you you can't multitask. You like literally have to sit and watch. The music is great. The costumes are great. The script is perfect. And Robert Redford and Paul Newman in their prime, ladies, both looking as goddamn gorgeous as you could ever imagine. Eileen Brennan has a supporting role as Billy, a female friend of Henry's. I applaud them for age-appropriate casting. In real life, she's right in the middle between Newman and Redford. Her character's well-written. She's really the only female character of substance in the very male-dominated cast. Billy is confident, smart, and she's a bit sassy. She owns an establishment that is a bar slash brothel and is very oddly situated above what appears to be an old-timey arcade filled with games like skee-ball and there's a big fancy merry-go-round. So she's running an entertainment venue for children directly below a whorehouse. I mean, you got to hand it to her. It's the Depression. I'm sure a lot of people benefited from a side gig. Harold Gould plays a guy named Kid Twist, who does all the behind the scenes legwork. While Henry and Hooker are busy reeling in the mark, Twist is basically the operations manager. He's doing all the hiring, securing all the locations, doing all the costumes and equipment. There's also a great character named JJ, played by Ray Walston. Some of you may know him as my favorite Martian, but to us Gen Xers, he will always be Mr. Hand from Fast Times at Ridgemont High. He's the teacher repeatedly at odds with Jeff Spicoli. Unlike some other movies I've reviewed so far, I think this one makes really good use of all the supporting players. Each of them helps to move the story along, so there's legitimate purpose for all of them to be there. And in the end... They all work flawlessly together to get one over on Doyle Lonigan, and it's really satisfying. Go watch this movie. I think you'll really enjoy it. Okay, that's a wrap. Thank you for listening. This has been Episode 9 of Cinema Sunday. I'll be back next week to discuss another Oscar-winning film. Please tell your friends about this podcast. If you feel so inclined, you can like, follow, subscribe, and even post a review. If you have a comment maybe I got some facts wrong, or you just want to tell me I have shit taste, you can email cinemasunday at yahoo.com. The music for Cinema Sunday is appropriately titled So Happy. It is by Scott Holmes Music. 
I got it off of freemusicarchives.org. And the work is licensed under Creative Commons by NC 4.0. Links are provided in the bio. And if you happen to visit the Free Music Archive, they do take donations. So please be generous. Thanks and see you next week.